us because we have the freedom to come or not. of you who I appreciate you being here, and there's a couple who are not. So um, this is an opportunity for us to recognize that there are people around the world who cannot openly worship God without fear of imprisonment. I think of the man who, uh, the pastor that was just released from imprisonment over in, in Turkey. I'm so grateful that he was. But we know that there are hundreds and hundreds of other brothers and sisters around the world who are incarcerated and are looking at the very real end of their own life because they are not willing to bend a knee to any other God other than the one that created them and sustains them. And they're not willing to call any other Lord than Jesus Christ. We recognize that there are countless brothers and sisters around the world who have to hide their faith for fear that they will be ejected from their families, ejected from their communities, ejected from their jobs, and ultimately potentially lose everything, including their life. And so this is an opportunity for us to learn about what's going on. We'll have a few guest speakers there that are involved in caring for the persecuted church as well as in worshiping. So that's one thing I don't want you to miss, and I hope that you will put November 4th on your calendar. The second thing I want to let you know about, and this is just a praise, um, Last week, we had an opportunity to hear from Lauren who felt called to go down to Costa Rica and to begin teaching for an entire year. She's, she's quit her job teaching here in California, and she's moving to Costa Rica to do missions and loving on these children. And so we, as her church family, wanted to put our money where our prayers were. And so we just said, hey, we're going to give half of whatever offering comes in this week to bless her and support her in that. And just to kind of give you an idea, the week before, I think we brought in something like $4,500, which is fabulous. This last week, we brought in over $12,000, which means, and now that this is the part, and I celebrate that, and I'm so grateful for your generous giving, but, but here's the best part. What was, came in, she will get over six, about $6,200, which is just enough to cover all of her lodging. Basically, we're going to cover where she will live for the entire year and her plane ticket down and back. So thank you guys for making that happen. I'm excited about that. Okay, with that, we are in the book of Ephesians. Grab your Bible, turn with me to the end of Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, as you're turning there, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible, there are some in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, the one that you, you pick up from under your seat is yours. We want to give it to you as a gift to you. We have plenty of others, all right? Um, we are wrapping up a conversation. We're not finishing the book of Ephesians. In fact, we're just kind of hitting the halfway point this week. But we are going to be wrapping up a single unified thought that Paul has been kind of working through over the last chapter and a half today. And that unified thought is this. God has done through Christ what the world cannot do because the world tends to build walls and separate people based upon skin color and, and um, economics, uh, you know, wh where you stand in terms of your income or the language that you speak or the way that you worship or your theological bent or the way that you vote. And we tend to separate from other people and, and identify them based upon how they're different from us. And God basically said, no, I have taken the people that are otherwise fractured and in Christ I've brought them together and made them a unified whole. In me, they are one. And, and just to kind of help us get this last week, I introduced the idea of a mosaic. Because we, like a mosaic, 
every single individual is like one of these broken chipped tiles in this mosaic that my son made. Every single one of us in in a mosaic, um, each tile looks different. It's shaped differently. It often has jagged edges. If you were to find a single piece of a mosaic tile on the ground, your chances are you'd pick it up and throw it in the trash so that somebody wouldn't get cut. And yet, when you take all of those disparate pieces that are different colors, different shapes, um, different sizes, had different histories prior to becoming part of this mosaic, and you bring them together, they, became, they become a single unified expression of the artist that created it. Now, this one was created by my 10-year-old son this summer. And I know you probably can't see it from where you're sitting, but there is an F in this. And since none of the people in my family have the letter F in their names, when he first showed it to me, he goes, what do you think? I think, it's great, but what is the F for? And he said, it's for family, Dad, because we're family. And so for my son, he wanted to celebrate and commemorate the fact that we are family, and he appreciates that. And that just warms the cockles of my heart, whatever those are. But in the same way, you and I and every single other man, woman, and child throughout history who has placed our faith in Jesus Christ have become part of the mosaic of God that represents his heart to a world that desperately needs to be reminded that they are loved, that they are part of a much larger family. And we call this mosaic many things. We call it the body of Christ, the family of Christ, or the church. And when we say the word church, do not think of a building, okay? Because the church of God, the church we're talking about, is not made with bricks, but with bodies. Every single one of us is a brick in the church of God through which his Holy Spirit dwells, where we can honor, glorify God, and ultimately where we become a beacon of hope into the spheres of influence that each of us reside. So you are part of this beautiful big mosaic. And I know, and we talked about this a little bit last week, that some of us probably don't feel worthy of being included in that mosaic because you're well aware of your chips. You're well aware of your dings. You're well aware of of the flaws that could potentially hinder you from being useful in your father's hands. The beautiful part about the gospel is that that's exactly who God uses to bring glory to himself and to represent himself. That's what makes it so stinking audacious that we can be part of the body of Christ. And it's in light of all of that that Paul celebrates over the last chapter or so that we've been looking at that as he comes to the end of chapter three now, he sings this prayer or he he prays this prayer over Many people in his audience that he's writing to living in Ephesus, many of them Gentile, who do not feel worthy to be called sons and daughters of God, do not feel worthy to be called his representatives. And this is what he prays over them so that they can rest in their identity as the sons and daughters of God. And it's part of this mosaic that he's building. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all of the rest of God's holy people, his saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep 
is the love of Christ. And to know this love, not just know about it, but to know it. This love that surpasses knowledge, which is kind of ironic that he says, I want you to know this love that is beyond your understanding, right? But I want you to know that love that you might be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. And then he ends chapter 3 in the same kind of way as a a declaration of praise to God in the same way that he began chapter 1. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. All right, so let's begin working through this because there's a lot in here and I suspect that there's probably a lot that we may have carried in and today is going to be a little introspective. So I'm asking you to prepare yourself. I'm going to ask you some questions and I actually want you to think about it rather than just kind of passively sitting and letting me do all the thinking for you. All right? I got nothing. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate that. I'm glad you're awake. This is not Netflix. This is, all right? <laughs> Don't pause me and go to the bathroom or something like that. For this reason, he starts with, for this reason. And and whenever you hit something like that or when he says, therefore, you always want to ask, what's the therefore? So what is this reason that he's building everything he's about to say off of? Well, certainly part of it is this idea that in, in Christ, two very disparate peoples has become one. So there's that. But there's also the words he said in verse 12. Go jump back just a little bit to verse 12. Where he says, in him, in Christ, and through faith in Christ, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Because remember who you are. You're no longer slaves to sin. You're now sons and daughters of God. That's who you are. So you do not have to enter into God's presence when you come into his presence with your head held low and hearts full of fear that the master is going to somehow punish you because that's how a a slave, that is how a servant will often approach. Think about when, when you're called into your boss's office, regardless of how close you are with your boss. Think about that feeling when you're called into the principal's office, right? You go in there like, what's going to happen? I'm a little bit nervous. I don't know what I've done. And you start kind of going through all of the different things that happened. You go, is there something I've done wrong? And if there is something that you, is that, is, is he going to bring that up? Is she going to bring that up? Am I going to get yelled at? And so there's a fear. And, and quite often, slaves and servants want nothing more than to flee out of the presence of the master because they're afraid of getting punished. In contrast, consider a child in the way that a child approaches a parent. Right this morning, Grayson wakes up and I'm sitting on the couch and he comes up and his, he, he, he'd already just taken a bath. So his hair's all, you know, kind of wet and he's wrapped in a, in a blanket to keep him warm. And he comes up to me and he just wants to climb up in my lap and sit down and snuggle in. And he's like, oh, uh, you know, I'm reading the Bible. He's like, read the Bible to me. And it's, and it's just so fun to be in, in his presence. It brings me so much joy, but it also brings him joy to be in his daddy's presence, Right. And that's the way that a child approaches a parent. Not with head hung low, but with arms held high. Not with fear in its heart, but with joy and excitement and expectancy to be with his mommy or his daddy. And that's how we can approach our God. But my guess is that many of us probably don't always feel that free, that joyful, that confident 
when we find ourselves coming into God's presence, some of us find ourselves dragging our tails and with our heads hung low and our hearts kind of heavy. Some of you even this morning may have walked in here and it was a miracle the fact that you showed up at all because there's that thin line between Saturday night and Sunday morning. And you're just like, man, I hope nobody asks me how I'm doing because I honestly don't want to add lying to the list of all of the things that I need to feel guilty about. Sometimes we feel a little bit like Isaiah did when he was faced to face with God, right? Woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips, right? I don't deserve to be in the presence of God. Sometimes that we feel more that way, which is interesting. Because consider all of the times that scripture reminds us that our God is a loving father who loves us, who is for us, who has gone out of his way to reconcile, to restore relationship to us. So why is it that we still feel like we are unworthy? Why we still want to push ourselves to arm's length because we're afraid to be fully vulnerable? And I mean, we're, we have more the tendency like Adam and Eve to go run off and hide and try to cover ourselves in some fig leaves than to just come as we are without shame, without fear. And I suspect at least part of this has to do with the fact that we call God our Father. Because that title, uh, it, it, while being a celebration, it, the title Father or Abba in Aramaic is the single most intimate title for God found anywhere in Scripture. It's the title that Jesus calls his daddy in heaven. And because we are adopted into the family, we have just as much right as Jesus to call him our Abba. And yet, that name, that title, Daddy, Father, carries with it. It can be a mixed bag, and it can carry a lot of baggage into our relationship with God. And we're going to delve into that a little bit this morning. But let's go back to verse 14. Because Paul says here, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, in our English translations, the point that he's making, the wordplay he's making there is totally lost on us. But if we, if we can throw that verse up there for a moment. In Greek, the word father and family are almost identical. They have the same root word. So father, the word is pater, and family is patria. So he says, for this reason, I kneel before the pater, from whom every patria in heaven and on earth derives its name. Does that make more sense now? The wordplay that he's going. His point is that our families and how we understand what it means to be in family should be influenced by the unearned, unwavering love of our father. The, the confidence and peace we can have in our terrestrial relationships with our terrestrial family should be shaped by the relationship that we can have with our heavenly father. And yet, I've been in, you know, I've been pastoring long enough to have plenty of conversations to recognize that not everybody has their in, in relationships with their parents have not been have been less influenced by their father in heaven than the other way around. That we tend to view the father through the lens of our earthly parents. And particularly the men who carried the t title father, whether they knew how to do that or not. And so for better or for worse, our understanding of and our relationship with God gets filtered through the broken relationship we have with our terrestrial fathers. 
Now, I didn't realize this for a long, long time. In fact, I had probably been a pastor for about three or four years at another church down the street before this truth came crashing home for me. And it happened in an evening service when we had, I don't even remember what we were talking about that night, but at the end of the service, we invited people to come up for prayer. And there was this young man who walked up to me and he was struggling with insecurity. He just, he wasn't comfortable in who he was and, and he wasn't comfortable in relationship with other people. And he, he certainly wasn't comfortable in his relationship with his heavenly father. And as I began to pray for that young guy, I remember feeling very strongly uh, this, this urge to pray the blessing that the father speaks over Jesus during his baptism. You remember that one? This is my son whom I love and with him I'm well pleased. And so I began. I, I, I said, I, I really feel like your father in heaven just wants you to know that you are his son and he loves you more than you could ever possibly fathom. And then I came to that part about the father being pleased with him and I had to stop because quite honestly, I didn't know this kid. And I didn't know if the father was pleased with him or not. I didn't feel, and I didn't feel comfortable to just say it without that confirmation in my spirit. So I kind of lamely wrapped up the prayer and moved on. But for the rest of that night, that moment stuck in my brain like a sliver beneath my skin. I kept going, what? Because it felt like in that moment, I had put my finger on an issue in my own perception of God. And so I began to kind of think about it. What is underneath it? And then it dawned on me. The reason that I don't feel comfortable giving this young man his blessing is because I don't feel like I have the father's blessing. And so before I can say whether or not God is pleased with him, my first inclination is to ask what he has done to earn the father's pleasure. Over the next couple of weeks, I continued to process through where is this coming from. Because as a pastor, I had told countless people, your identity is not based upon what you've done, but, but upon what he has done. And yet in reality, the way I was approaching was vastly different. It was all based upon what I had done or had not done to earn the Father's pleasure. And through prayer, through journaling, through wise counsel of people that I trusted... I, I finally kind of dug to the core of where this was coming from. You see, I was viewing the Father through my own relationship with my Father on earth. A man who I want you to know is still to this day one of my greatest heroes. A man that I love and who has loved me, my mother, and my brothers well. He was a great father, and yet... In spite of being a great father from a, a home that kind of against the statistics was still intact, I had still picked up throughout my relationship that I had to earn his pleasure. And it's not what he told me, it's what I heard and how I perceived love. Because I knew that my dad loved me. He showed me, my mom, and my brothers in countless ways. But when it came to his pleasure little things that he would say along the way, I interpreted to mean I am, am letting my dad down. He's not proud of me. Therefore, I have to do something to earn it. Let me give one example of just one of those words that stuck with me. Some of you have heard this before. We were down in Mexico at this place on the sandbar that, that I grew up going to. Um, there was a bunch of people up around the campfire. My dad was making dinner, and I was walking along the shore, and there was a football that had been left down there, and the tide was going to come in and probably take it away. So I picked the football up, and I was carrying it up to camp. And I'm probably 13 or 14 at the time. 
and I, and I look at the football, and I look up at camp, and it's just an impulse. Well, throw it. You know, it's going to get there one way or the other. Might as well tra- practice your throw. So I just cock back, and I throw it. And it was the first time in my life I've ever thrown a perfect spiral. First time, and probably like the last time. And so as it, when I let go, I just kind of reveled in the tight spiral as it began to arc. And then it hit its apex and began to fall back towards camp, towards a whole bunch of people that were not looking in that direction and had no idea that a missile was incoming. And, and I wanted to yell, like, look out! But like it, those words dug their heels into my throat and wouldn't come out. I mean, and I'm wishing I could take it back. And I watched this football that was beautifully thrown, but now I'm like lamenting the fact that I've thrown it. And it comes straight down into camp and right onto the table where my dad is preparing dinner. I baptized my father in baked beans. And as I'm standing on the shore, I hear, Eric! And at this point, slave walking to the master, right? Like head hung low on my way to the chopping block. And I have no idea how I would respond if Ethan or Grayson did something like this today. I probably would not be nearly as gracious as my dad was in that moment. But he kind of shakes his head as I'm walking up. And he goes, I'll be driving you to college, son. (laughs) And his word... That, kind of in a, in, a, in a humorous way of letting his frustration out, he basically said to me, although he wasn't saying this, what, he, what I heard him say is, you will never be entrusted with a car. <laughs> Maybe he was saying that. But what I heard underneath that was, son, you're not trustworthy, and I'm disappointed in you, and I don't trust you. And so much of my adolescent life, and hear me, that's not what my father was saying, but that's what I interpreted it to mean. And and as I look back on my adolescent life, so much of my relationship with my dad was me trying to prove to him that I was worthy to be called his son, that I could make my dad proud. And so I would try to get good grades, not because I cared about whether or not it would get me into college, because I wanted my mom and my dad to be proud of me, but particularly my dad, because he was my hero. Still is. And I, when, when I encountered a problem, my first impulse wasn't to take the problem to my dad, hey, can you fix this, because I wanted to make him proud. I sought to do everything in my power to deal with it before I would ever bring it to him. And only after I'd exhausted all of my efforts and all of my resources would I then go ask him, because again, I wanted him to be proud of me. And when I had trouble in my life, when I got hurt, I didn't give vent to my feelings to him. I would hold on to them and try to be stoic because real men don't cry, right? And I got to be strong. I got to prove to my dad that I'm a man. And I would read a thousand-page biographies of dead people like Winston Churchill because my dad would read them. And I wanted to have something to talk about them. And in those ways, in so many other ways, I sought to earn my dad's approval. Not that he was demanding it, not that he was withholding his approval. I simply didn't feel secure in it. And so I tried to earn it. So is it any wonder why when it comes to my heavenly father, I have no problem resting in the fact that God loves me? But is he pleased with me? That's where I have a problem. Because I couldn't rest in it with my terrestrial father. I can't, I have a hard time resting in that with my heavenly father. 
I'm not suggesting that all of you view God the same way. I'm simply saying this is my bent and it flows out of my relationship with my dad. But I suspect that for many of us in here this morning, our relationship with God is influenced by our earthly relationships with our parents. Now, for some of you, it may not actually be your dad who influenced your relationship with God as much as your mom. I know for my wife, she, she grew up in a single home and her mom had to be father. And so her mom has had a greater voice on what it means, you know, what that father term means than even her own dad. But I suspect that for all of us, there is some crossover between your, the relationships with your terrestrial father and your heavenly father. So here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to just take a moment and pull out the, the uh, insert in your bulletin. And at the bottom of that first page, there's a question. Can we throw that up on the board? That question is, what, is, what are some words that you would use to describe your relationship with your dad? Or if your dad wasn't around at all, maybe it, it's your mom. Whoever your you know, father figure or the, the major influence in your life growing up. What are some words you would use to describe that relationship? Take two or three minutes and jot them down. I recognize that the time I've given you is woefully short for you to genuinely give some space to think about this, and you may need to take that question with you um, into this week. Life, those of you who are in life groups, uh, I, no doubt you guys will be leaning into and processing that question and several others along this line on uh, that night that you meet. But let me add a second question that I want you to consider as you consider this question throughout the week. And that is, are these words you would also use to describe your relationship with God as well? Is there crossover? And I understand that for some of you, that may not, the answer may not be yes. It may actually be very different. You may view God through a different lens. But for many of us in here this morning, here's something I suspect. I suspect that if your father or father figure was critical of you growing up, then when you stumble, when you mess up, when you do something you know you shouldn't have, in your mind, when you picture God, you picture him with his arms crossed, a disappointed look on his face, kind of shaking his head, or however your father figure showed his or her displeasure. And if your father was angry and abusive, then 
then chances are you will feel this sense of when you get, when something goes wrong in your life. You know, you, you wake up one morning and the radiator on your car has burst or there's a flat tire or you get a letter in the mail from the IRS or you, you're, one of your kids gets sick. Chances are, in the back of your mind, you chalk that up to, well, this is just God punishing me for I don't know what. Let me, let me figure out what I've done, right? Or if your father or father figure was an absentee parent, he wasn't even there. And when you think of God, perhaps he feels distant and, in, and indifferent, Sure, he may be doing stuff, but those other things he's doing are way more important than how he feels about you. Now, please hear me when I say, this is, this is not how I'm suggesting God actually looks at you and feels about you. I am simply trying to get some of us who have been looking at God through a corrupted lens to begin to recognize that perhaps some of the ways we've been perceiving our Father is flawed because we have imperfect human beings that have raised us in the same way that Kathy and I are imperfect human beings trying to raise two other imperfect human beings and so on and so forth. And we love them and we do everything we can to raise them well, but we cannot help but be imperfect. And so my prayer often for my boys is that our imperfections wouldn't mask their ability to see God for who he is and their ability to embrace the love he has for them, exactly how he feels about them. But I know from my own experience that sometimes our relationships with our earthly parents can shape the way we view our heavenly father and it can even warp the way we hear his voice. Let me give you another example. I have a buddy who's whose father was verbally abusive to him growing up. He would use words like idiot and stupid, and he would speak these words over his son regularly. Whenever he messed up, you're an idiot, ah, whatever. Why are you so stupid, right? And those words, even though he was, he was tough, those words penetrated his heart and found purchase in his, the way he perceives himself. And so not too long ago, I was talking with him about an area of his life that he continues to struggle in. And I sat back and I said, well, what do you think God would say to you? And almost without thinking, he just says, well, I think you'd tell me stop being such an idiot and stop it. And I was a little taken aback by the, the energy in his voice. And I couldn't help but think, man, that doesn't sound like God. That sounds a whole heck of a lot like your dad. And I just wonder what Paul would say to us if he was in this conversation. And again, I may not be speaking to everybody in here this morning. Some of you have a wonderful relationship with God. And quite honestly, you had a wonderful relationship with your, with your parents. And I celebrate that. I'm simply wanting us to recognize the way that some of our earthly parents shape the way we view our Heavenly Father so we can begin to separate those two entities out. So we can hear God for who He is and how He speaks over us and how He really feels about us rather than hearing His voice through the corrupted filter of our earthly parents. And I suspect that this, what Paul would do if he was in this conversation this morning, would be to pray over us a similar prayer to what he prayed over the Ephesian Christians living in Ephesus. What's that? Look at verse 16 here. 
Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he, our Father God, may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, keep this in mind. We already, as believers, remember, he's speaking to believers here. He already has said, you have the Holy Spirit. Because when we are adopted into the family of God, through faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a mark of ownership. God's saying, this one's mine. And as a way of beginning to shape our hearts to reflect his heart. So now Paul is saying, my prayer is that, is that God's spirit that's already within you would give you the power to shift your focus away from your own imperfections and away from the things that cause you to be insecure so that you could focus it back onto Christ, your true north, the author and perfecter of your faith. That you can shift your focus onto him and that you can find your identity not in the things that make you insecure, not in your imperfections, not in what you do, but that you can find your identity firmly in him. That's what the whole first half of the book of Ephesians is about, is who we are in Christ. We're not sinners, we're saints. Just another word for a saved sinner. That's who we are. We're not rejected, we're chosen in him. We're not prodigals, rejects. We are adopted sons and daughters who are utterly secure in his love. That is who you are in Christ. We are not divided. We are one unified family. One beautiful mosaic that reflects the heart of our Father. And you can rest in that. And when you come into God's presence, you can come with confidence and peace knowing that he loves you. And so may you fix your eyes on Jesus rather than fixing your eyes on your flaws. Why? Why does that help? Well, think about the time that Jesus invited Paul, and not Paul, Peter, to step out of the boat. You remember that? Peter sees Jesus walking on water. Is that really you, Jesus? Yeah, it's me. Well, can I come out? Come on out, buddy. So he steps out of the boat. And, and even though there were wind and waves all over the place, as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he could walk on the water step after step. And then he began to focus away from Jesus and onto the wind and the waves. And he began to think, I can't walk on water. And he was right. And he began to sink. And he took a bath. When we fixate on our imperfections and on, on our, the things that make us insecure, that doesn't make us more secure to fixate on them and to beat ourselves up about them and go, I must try better. We all become little moralists who try to be a little bit better and we will all only become more and more aware of our imperfection and more and more insecure and feel more and more unworthy of his love. But when you fix your eyes on Jesus, you allow him to be the, the core of your identity you find in him, then all of those other things, like the, as that old hymn says, then the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the, in the light of his mercy and grace. Although our shadow self is still there, it falls behind us when we walk towards Christ and when we find our identity in him. So his first prayer is that through the enablement of the Spirit, we would be able to shift our focus off of ourselves and onto Christ. And he continues. 
in the second half of verse 17. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, fight grounding your identity in Christ, in the, in the love that God has for you, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people, the other saints, to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. <clears throat> and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, not just know about that love, but to know it in your heart, to rest in it, to live in it, that you may be filled to overflowing with the measure of all the fullness of God, that he may fill you with his presence and that that would be enough. So, so Paul's prayer is that as we fix our eyes on Jesus and as the Holy Spirit begins to work in us, we would be able to grasp something that is simply beyond our understanding. And that is that our Father God and his son Jesus Christ love us more than we could ever possibly fathom. And he's, his prayer is that we would root our identity as sons and daughters deep into that reality that he loves us. Well, what, what does that love mean? Because the love that this world talks about, that's a contingent love. It's, it's, it's dependent upon what we do. And Paul would say, no, no, no. This isn't a love you earned as if you ever could earn it. This is a love that he lavished upon you. And because you didn't earn it, you can't lose it. And, and there is, you, as you begin to put the roots of your identity in, down into that love, you will never be able to reach the bottom of it. It's that deep. It's that wide. It's that high. It's that long. The, the love that he has for us, Jesus said, there is no greater love that a person has for another than that they would lay down their life for his friend, right? No greater love than that. But what did Jesus do for us? He laid down his life for you and for me because you deserved it, right? No. While we were still sinners, while we were still in open rebellion against him, Christ died for us. It is not a love that you earned. It is not a love you deserved. But it is a love that he lavished on you because he loves you. And his prayer is that we would root our identity into that love. Because if we don't, if we don't rest, if we don't abide in his love for us then we will go trying to root our identity into other things that are far more superficial. Maybe we will try to root into his love, but we'll try to earn it through our own good actions, right? Through, I got to make it to church at least twice a, a week, and I only want to be like, like 10 minutes late, right? So I'm going to do that. And, and maybe one, every once in a while, I'll even read my Bible in the morning, but man, I do love sleep, right? And so we, we try to do our best and try to earn God's love. Or we'll begin to try to root into the security of other people's approval. And so we will do whatever we need to do to earn their approval. We will become little social chameleons that begin to change the way that we look, the way that we act based upon which group we're in. I've done this way too long. 
I did this for much of my life as I look back on it. When I was at work, I was Mr. Stoic and serious, Eric. I would come up to my boss, I kid you not, with my arms behind my back, kind of at military rest, saying, I finished that, what would you like me to do? Okay, and then I would go run off and do it, and try to do it as quickly as possible, which meant that I made a lot of mistakes along the way, but at least I was doing it quickly, because I felt like that was how I earned my boss's approval. But then I would be hanging with my friends that night, and I was Mr. Silly, Irreverent Eric. And I was two radically different people because I was not being myself so much as I was being what I thought other people wanted me to be. And and would you please hear this from somebody who has spent way too many years of his life trying to be what other people wanted him to be, trying to earn God's approval, my parents' approval, and my peers' approval through my efforts. It is exhausting. I'm looking over here because we've got some of our young adults. It is an exhausting existence. Because one of the problems is it's like a hamster wheel. You never arrive. You have to keep being good. You have to keep earning your identity, and you're only as good as your last performance. And so it doesn't matter how well I taught last week. I better knock it out of the park this week, otherwise you guys are going to think less of me, right? When I find my identity in the shallow topsoil of people's approval, you better believe that that's the insecurity we have. But that's not even the worst part. The worst